Audi. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sports presenter Charlie Webster arrived at our interview cut and bruised from the fall the previous day during the London Marathon. But this is nothing compared to the 3,000-mile cycle ride from London to Rio she did in 2016, which ended in her being in a coma and given 24 hours to live. She's worked all over the world, starting off at Real Madrid TV and then at ESPN in Singapore. She has the most incredible, irresistible energy. She now works tirelessly to help people going through what she went through. I know you're going to love her. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. You're listening to The Big Travel Podcast. And here is the inspirational Charlie Webster. Thank you so much for coming. When yesterday you ran the London Marathon, you're limping, (laughs) you're cut and bruised, (laughs) but you completed it, which is amazing considering what you've been through. So I think what I want to start with is tell me what you've been through, because that is very travel related you did a very long journey by bike a couple of years ago that resulted in you ending the journey in a coma is that right yeah um well thanks for having me and you're right um just to give a picture I look like I've had a fight with a pavement or I'm a teenager that's been skateboarding (laughs) and had a fight with a pavement um which technically you have (laughs) yeah which technically have and my foot got stuck in a pothole I'm not quite sure but yeah, as you mentioned, um, I did a 3,000-mile cycle ride um, just before the Olympics. So they set off from the London 2012 Olympic Stadium in London, obviously, and then cycled all the way to Rio to finish at the top of Christ Redeemer, which is 3,000 miles. And it was incredible because we saw so many things cycling through France, through the amazing forests, and then hitting the beaches, and then through Spain. Uh, through Portugal where it was extremely hot across the mountains Pyrenees and then cycling all the way down Brazil because we started at the very top of Brazil and it was just incredible to see so many different things it was really tough and I think the thing I found the hardest was the monotony of I mean even though we've seen so many amazing things but of getting back on the bike every single day so it's like you know today I'm pretty cut and bruised as we said and I'm tired the thought of going to do another marathon today is soul destroying but it was a little bit like that because you got to the point where you were so tired there was one point where probably about halfway down Brazil around about Salvador we were cycling fast because we had to complete so many miles in every day and I started to fall asleep on the bike I was cycling about 27 miles an hour and then I was like whoa you know when you start to fall asleep at a wheel in the car it's and it's, terrifying. It's, yeah it scares you you know, because I've had, had a crash then. And I was like, wow, just because your body's just 
had enough and you're like almost like this metronome robot trying to cycle and then I arrived in Rio got to the top of Christ Redeemer and I just didn't feel myself you know when you just know something's not right and I was like oh I don't I don't feel elated or you know I'm normally quite a hyper energetic person like on the bike ride they actually called me Tigger because <laughs> I was the annoying person going hello come on let's, let's go and everybody else was like Ugh. But that's just kind of who my personality is and I just wasn't like that at all and I think that's when people know there's something wrong with me because I just go quiet three days later I ended up with a coma and was told I got 24 hours to live and I was told I was going to die and that's when my mum got flown out and it just I don't know I've learned so much so much I mean it was such a horrific thing to happen but I've learned so much because you know, three days before, I was just cycling into Rio, having just completed 3,000 miles and pushing your body, and I kind of thought I was a bit indestructible. And then three days later, to be in a position where I was, you know, I was having organ failure, my lungs were collapsing, I was getting hemorrhaging on the brain, and my kidneys had failed. It's just the most weirdest feeling ever, because I was like, I don't understand why I'm lying here. And even the people in the beds near me, I was kind of like, oh, are they all right? Because <laughs> they were, like, screaming and in a lot of pain. I was like, oh, like, I hope they're okay. And I was thinking, hang on a second, I'm in this situation. And then, yeah, my mum got flown out. And So what happened? You'd arrived at the pinnacle of your journey. Yeah. And how did you get from there to hospital? Did you collapse? What exactly happened? I basically did what I was meant to be presented on the games. And I did one life hit. And in between, I was being sick. I was, like, putting a brave face on, like trying to smile as much as possible but I'd kind of gone in the eyes a little bit a couple of my friends noticed it but yeah before and after I was just being sick and on the toilet and then I started to blood basically started to come out of my mouth and out of my bum and also out of my nose then I went to the opening ceremony I was you know told I didn't have to go but I, <laughs> I really wanted to go because when I I did present on London 2012 but I didn't get to go to the opening ceremony and so I was like I've never been to an opening ceremony I really want to go but I didn't think I was that ill, and that's the thing. It's just like bleeding from all orifices. Yeah, I know, and I know it sounds stupid, but at the time, and I think a lot of people like this, I think it's the human, kind of human coping mechanism, if that makes sense, that, you know, yesterday I had a really bad accident and I carried on running the marathon. It's just who I am, innately, I think. And also you've, you're used to, you've done sports, you've done yeah, challenges I'm used from a to very pushing young age. Myself. Yeah, and I'm quite bad for that, and that's one thing I've had to change in myself, because I push and I push and I push until the very limit. And that is something I've, I've had to really work out. And I'm, I'm in the process of changing. I haven't managed to change it fully yet, obviously. Because so I did yesterday. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there you are, bleeding and at the opening ceremony of the, yeah. the Rio Olympics. So what happened next? I didn't want to let anybody down because of who I was working for. And I waited for Team GB to come out. And it was more, yeah, I just don't like letting people down. And I was with the people I was working with. And in the end, I left after I saw Team GB come out. And then I took myself back to where I was staying and then just lied on the toilet floor all night in a ball, just bleeding and in a right mess. And then I took myself off to the doctor's first thing that morning. Um, and initially, I remember put, putting a picture on Instagram because initially I was told I was severely dehydrated and I was just put on two drips. And I kept saying to them, yeah, but I don't understand why I'm bleeding. And they just ignored me. But also there was a big language barrier and, you know, they don't have public health care over there so I had to kind of put credit cards down for them to see me and and then I posted this picture on Instagram and I've kind of like made a bit of a joke and again it's kind of who I am I'm a bit jokey and I said oh something like this is what happens when you cycle 3,000 miles but then straight after that it all happened so quick 
where I rapidly went downhill. I, I started to struggle to breathe, could hardly walk. I was in pain like I've never experienced in my entire life. It's pain that you can't really describe and because it's not like we can we can relate to it in our brains, if that makes sense. And basically, I got admitted to hospital, but I just lied there for a couple of days in this really not nice hospital. And then that's when a doctor pulled the curtain around, walked in and said, you're dying, we need to move you to a different hospital. You know, we've, we've found this, you, you've got this hemolytic syndrome, but we don't know what's going on. Uh, you're bleeding internally, you're hemorrhaging, we need to get you on blood transfusions, your kidneys have failed, we need to get you on dialysis, but we don't have any of that here. And that was the first time that it kicked in that I was really ill and I started to panic. And that's when you know, the British consulate was phoned, my mum was phoned, and it was this mad scramble to try and get me into a hospital that could cater for me because the time was in the essence. By the time I got to that second hospital that had the facilities and an intensive care unit, by that time I'd had kidney failure for like three days and had no, you know, I was running out of blood, um, you know, my lungs were failing. And then that's when I was given 24 hours to live because it was so close and they had to put me in a coma, otherwise I would have died there and then. But they had to wait for my mum to fly over to put me in the coma. Um, and then my mum flew over. I saw her for a, a moment and I, that, that moment is one of the most um, horrific moments in my entire life because I saw her face and I just saw the pain and heartache in her eyes. And I was like, you know, I'm breaking my mum's heart here. I'm, I've done this to her and anybody that's got kids, I think we'll, we'll relate, and I know you've got kids yourself. And I just, I was just heartbroken because of more the pain I could see in my mum's eyes, and then I got put in a coma, and then I had a machine keeping me alive, and then they said to my mum that it was pretty much game over and I wasn't gonna come out, um, and that it, there was a tiny, slim chance of me coming out, and if I did, um, I'd be severely brain damaged because they could already see that it was already going to my brain, and they could already see um, hemorrhaging on the brain. So how the hell do you get from that to sitting here looking beautiful and wonderful despite oh, the grazes you. on your knee and the picture of health? How on earth did you get from that hospital in Brazil where presumably not many people are speaking English? No. Your mum has just been told that you're probably going to die. What happened next? Yeah, that, it was a great point you just made because I think one of our big problems was that nobody, well, very little people spoke English. So some of the high senior doctors spoke a bit of English, but then anybody that was like a nurse, they didn't speak any English at all. And it was a real battle. Like my mum used Google Translate, thank God for technology now. There's a screenshots on my mum's phone of, of, of Google Translates to, tell, to try and tell my mum what's going on with me and for my mum to ask the questions. And, you know, you said, how am I here? Part of me, I, I do have these weird feelings a lot. Actually, I've had a lot of mental battles as much as I have physical sense for this, from this. I often ask that question because I don't understand because I also met somebody this week whose son had died from the same thing I had, but not just the same thing, the same type, the same symptoms and died very quickly and wasn't as bad as me and died. And I just think, how? why did I survive but I also know that I was so desperate to live and the fact that I could I could hear my mum when I was in the coma I think made a big difference to me because the desperation to survive for her the doctor said that they kept saying to my mum she's very strong like her heart is very strong and when I came out of the coma eventually and started to recover and they still don't know how able I was going to be how whether I was going to be disabled or not um, was the kind of question and they kept saying I was such a fighter and that they'd never really met anybody that could fight like that and was so strong because I was even fighting in the coma. I mean, 
in the end they had to restrain me. I think I caused them a lot of problems, but I think that's one of the reasons why I'm alive. And I think when I came out of hospital, just to finish answering your question, I had two choices. And I think that I feel like I chose to stay alive as well, just to make that point. Because I feel like at one point I could have just gone. And then we would never forget that moment in the coma where I'd had enough and I was in a lot of pain and I was given I was given an option. And then something kicked in where I was just desperate to fight. And like I said, I could hear my mum's voice and my brother's voice. But then when I came out of hospital, I feel like I could have... I felt very different. I felt like I lost my identity. And, you know, you know, we're talking about travel. Like, I love travelling. I love adventure. And I felt like... And that's a big part of who I am. So what happens when that gets taken away from you? And that's what I felt like what happened. And I was like, I don't know who I am anymore. Um, I'm crying all the time. I'm really anxious, which is not who I normally am. And then something kicked in where I was like, no, I've survived for a reason. I've been given the gift of life, a second chance, and I'm not going to give in to that. That's why I'm sat here today, and, and I've had that. It's hard, I have to fight it every day to have that attitude, but I'm really determined that I'm not going to be this victim, and I'm going to use the fact that I've been given the gift of surviving, because not a lot of people do, and to make the most of it. I don't think they've actually said that it was malaria. At oh, what yeah. point did they <laughs> diagnose that it was malaria? Well, that was one of the problems. If you have severe malaria, so there's kind of different types. I had a rare form, and it was very severe. It basically eats your body. That's what malaria does. It eats your organs, eats your blood, and then gets to the brain. And then it also gets to the heart, which is what happened. I actually was in the notes. It says I was aggressively resuscitated. So I know that was brought back to life. And then um, the doctor said that, actually one of the main reasons why I'm here is because my heart was strong enough to come back quickly but that's because of all the exercise I've done so if there's anything that can promote exercise it's not about the size or your way you look it's about making sure that you're healthy to live your life not just for you but for all the people around you that'd be a big message from me um but yeah it was malaria and they didn't diagnose it until literally they were saying that I wasn't going to survive the night and then I mean, again, it's a very long story, but I'll do it really quickly. Somebody in America, in Washington, had managed to get my notes because I think my notes were passed everywhere because they didn't know what was going on, what was wrong with me. And I think some tropical disease specialists got my notes and then they'd gone through everything. I was tested for everything. You know, Zika was a big problem at the time. So, you know, Zika, yellow fever, you know, and it was coming back negative every time. And then these doctors said, why on earth hasn't you been tested for malaria? And I hadn't. It was the only thing I hadn't been tested for. And then I think it got passed back to this female doctor and they were like, oh, we don't need to test her for that. We, have, we don't have malaria in Rio. But obviously I'd travelled and that was the thing. It, and I'd travelled in remote places. And then this female doctor was like, no, no, we're going to test her and tested me. But they didn't have the testing facilities. So they had to get my blood and send it to San Francisco, send it back and it came just back in time as positive when they were about to give up on me because that's when I was um, resuscitated. So it was like, we're not going to be able to keep bringing her back. And then they just gave me the um, medication. It was out-of-date medication, but they gave it me. They don't always carry malaria medicines unless you're in a high-risk malaria area. They were like, we'll just give it her as a last-minute try before she dies. And I reacted. And then that's why they kept me, kept me alive, because my body started to react to the medicine. Malaria in Brazil is news to a lot of us, even as a travel professional, because when we go to Brazil, we tend to go to Rio and actually and the cities and actually I wasn't even aware that malaria is an issue in yeah. the remoter parts of Brazil yeah it's in um, well it's a very high risk malaria in the Amazon but I know the Amazon's a lot further like um, west but we did go off route quite a lot because we had problems with the route because it was so dangerous um, so we actually went 
a lot more west than we were meant to. But you can, I mean, there was an outbreak in North Brazil in exactly where they said I got it just this year, at the beginning of this year. The thing about malaria is mosquitoes and the parasite of malaria doesn't have a passport. They don't go, mm, I'm not going to cross that border. You know, and I think that's what we've got to be really careful of. Also climate change, um, our temperatures are increasing. And also because of um, displacement, we've got the most people displaced since World War II, 65 million. And that's also causing the spread of diseases. And so I think, you know, we shouldn't rest on our laurels. I know sometimes we all have a habit of going, oh, well, we'll be fine. But, you know, I'd say with travel, don't be scared of it. Please don't stop travelling. You know, I went to Uganda recently and I'm not going to let this stop me, but just take precautions and take anti-malarials because, trust me, even if the anti-malarials make you a little bit sick, it's so much worth, you know, worth it compared to what's happened to me. I mean, it nearly took my life. Don't risk it. Did you take anti-malarials or didn't think you needed them? No, I didn't take them because I was actually advised not to. Well, I wasn't advised as in don't take them. I was just told I didn't need to. So I, I, I would asked, assume the same for Brazil yeah, as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, I had everything else. I had yellow fever injections, you know, updates of hep A, hep B, rabies. And then I said, oh, do I need to take anti-malarial tablets, which I have taken them before, by the way, in other countries. And they said, oh, no, you don't need to take them. It's fine. You know, you're in a lower risk area. And you ran the marathon in support of a malaria charity. And yeah. that's why you were in Uganda. Tell me about your trip to Uganda. Oh, my gosh. If any of you out there or yourself, I don't know if you've been to Uganda, Want to, find, want to have a cool trip, go to Uganda. Firstly, the people, and I'm not just saying this, like I've travelled a lot, and the people are just so nice and kind and welcoming and so polite. They kind of speak this like old-fashioned English, and I learnt a lot from them because they have this amazing culture of community, welcoming foreigners as their friends, which I think is really important. We're a global community. We shouldn't be insular. We can learn from each other all the time. But also, it's so lush and which is a problem why they have malaria, but it's, you know, so green. And they have, like, we saw loads of these baboons, and they have amazing, the gorillas, of course. The food's amazing, and obviously it's a really nice climate. And it's just so interesting. The culture's like a really interesting, you know, it's just a really interesting place. And don't be scared of the malaria because, you know, it's the really remote places. We went to a very remote village, which was on the west of Uganda by the border of the Congo, the DRC. But even that, it was just incredible to, to meet the people. And I mean, I'm so fond of them. I can't wait to come back. And we keep write, I'm writing letters to the community leaders. It's brilliant. It's so nice. I've got this like That's pen friends. Letters. Yeah. Oh, I love yeah, it. No emails. So, yeah. Anything. And we're getting translations because they do learn English at, at children level, which is great. They are getting educated and learning different languages but there's so many different dialects there so they're writing in their their actual dialect and then getting it translated and then I'm writing in English obviously because I don't speak their language and it's just it's just so heartwarming. I saw a lovely little video you did online about visiting there and I watched that this morning on the way to uh, you know do my research before I came to chat to you and that's twice you've almost made me cry today oh, once sorry. of your story <laughs> of being in the hospital with your mum there and the other time was in Uganda and this film shows you meeting the family of a child that had the exact same malaria that you had and, yeah. and died. I know, it was that heartbreaking. It was and, and I found again, I get this like guilt thing. Survivor's guilt. Yeah. It's a, a well known yeah. post traumatic stress. Yeah, and I didn't disorder. know obviously much about it really, but yeah, I'd heard it. Um, because you hear, hear about it, I think, in mass, you know, horrific things that happen. But, yeah, I was like, oh, I'm really sorry. Like, I'm really sorry. Because, I, you know, Edith was um, the mum's name and the little girl was called Asher and she was nine. And they were saying how 
how wonderful she was and she was so clever and she wanted to be a doctor and she was working really hard and these people are so poor and I mean so poor they're living at subsistence they have nothing I mean I went and brought a football into that village because they hadn't got a football they'd never seen a football but they're so grateful and happy and appreciative and and so strong they're so resilient and Asha's mum Edith she was you know crying and and her dad Mazima Mosi was just I don't know and oh it was just it was just heartbreaking and actually they had a little boy called Jordan who got the same malaria as Asha but he only survived because they learnt and it's so sad they had to learn from their daughter's death to help their son because they didn't get Asha, you know, help in time and they didn't recognise the symptoms. And because the thing is, we might be here with all our education, but they don't really know all the symptoms of malaria or how to prevent malaria, which is actually something I'm working on at the moment, trying to set up a project um, to do that because I saw that as a bit of a hole in, in this fight against malaria. What facilities do they have? What are the charity providing, for example? You see, it's quite complicated. It's the most, it's complicated but simple because it's the most, it's preventable and treatable, so nobody should die from it. We can get it because, you know, a mosquito carries the parasite, but everybody's working on that. Like, there was a massive push um, last week at Commonwealth Summit, which is amazing, where the Commonwealth committed to halving malaria deaths um, in the next five years. And it was amazing because I've never seen collaboration like it, and I think we can learn a lot from that when we're trying to tackle various things, but I think it helped that it was a cross-party issue. But on the ground, there is push for bed nets, but the thing is, you know, they don't have beds. You know, we call, as Westerners, have called them bed nets. Well, great, (laughs) they don't have beds, so they need to be taught what a bed net is because they don't quite understand. They live in mud huts. Where are they supposed to hang it? They need to tuck it in to mattresses, but they've all got to sleep under the bed net. There's families of seven to nine. It's these little things I think we don't quite think about on a smaller detail, on a grassroots level. And that's what I want to try and go and do. And also engaging te- the teenagers and the young people. Because I felt like, oh gosh, where do these teenagers go? Like, they're so, they're clever, they're, they've got amazing characters and personalities. But where do they aspire to be? And also, they, they're the next generation, so it's those that we need to teach. Because there's things like removing stagnant water, making sure that their, their huts are completely closed at night time, making sure everybody sleeps under a bed net, making sure you look out for the symptoms. It's, that's what they need to know because how on earth do they know that if we're not teaching them we just go and dump some you know put some bed nets in and and which is amazing by the way it definitely needs to be done but there needs to be an education alongside it and also readily available treatment the treatment costs next to nothing but it's amazing what the scientists are doing but they're trying to find a vaccine but even if they find this amazing vaccine it has to make sure that it goes at the grassroots level and I think sometimes it's very top-down approach so there needs to be a bit of bottom-up. The simple things like realising that not people have beds to take yes, a bed nest Yeah, in. and I didn't know. It was only because I went to such a remote place that I was like, oh my gosh, now I can see, you know, the problems. But just going back to that family, Jordan, the son, had terrible severe malaria and they just caught it in time and managed to get him treatment. Because also there's a risk that even if they do survive, the majority of children develop developmental problems and learning difficulties and there was a girl I met who got cerebral palsy because of the malaria. We don't really hear about those stories. We just hear about the deaths or the survivors and not actually the problems they survived with. But I did run yesterday with a picture of me and Jordan on my back. So you've got lasting health problems then after your illness? Yeah, I've got um, a long-term kidney problem. And that's why I was slightly worried about yesterday. 
and I took it easy. I stopped about six times. Family and friends planted along the way. And I think Mo Farah should have come and got my support crew because they were the best. They would have mixed his drinks up. You can hire <laughs> them out next yeah, time. Yeah, exactly. Mo, if you're listening, they're available. <laughs> 14 miles in, I had a wobble because I wasn't feeling great and I was suffering from the heat. My knee was hurting from falling over. But also I was very aware that I don't want to be selfish because I have a family here. And even though I wanted to cross that line, the main thing was crossing that line and not putting my family or my friends or even people that have been so kind to support me and giving me time on social media. And, and the most important thing about the marathon is, is not about running. It's about everybody's reason and story of why they do that and the battles everybody's overcoming in it. The running gives you an opportunity to work through that battle. On to, well, not happier times, because that was quite a happy thing, <laughs> completing the marathon. I don't know if you'd have asked me that during it. Right. <laughs> I wasn't happy at moments. You've always been incredibly sporty, and I think one of your earlier jobs was reporting for Real Madrid TV. Is mm, that right? Yeah. In Madrid. How was that? Yeah, oh, it was amazing. It was actually my first proper TV job. <laughs> I was doing bits, and I was doing some modelling, but that was my first proper TV gig. And I was incredibly lucky and grateful to get that, because... Um, when I was a kid, you know, talking about travel, when I was a kid, I didn't get to travel. Um, I was from, you know, a very working class, poor family. And I always dreamt of traveling and I dreamt of being in Spain because I didn't know a lot of the world that Spain was like, because like, people used to go to Spain when I was a kid all the time. So it's like, you know, British people. So I was like, oh my God, Spain, you know, and, and I know now we're so much more connected. But back in those days, making myself sound old, we weren't. So Spain was like the big glory thing for me. So to be offered that job I was like I just wanted to travel and my mum also that's all she wanted for me because she never got to have that because she fell pregnant with me as a teenager so she didn't get to have her education she didn't get to live that life or travel and so when I got offered that job it wasn't just about working for Madrid TV it was about moving to, to Madrid and I was like oh my gosh I was only 21 years old I was just out of uni I was like broke and living in London <laughs> living in some little bed sit in somebody else's house you know somebody else's bed sit you know in debt and I think like just getting that was just incredible and living in Madrid was just amazing it's one of my favorite cities in the world it's still got its Spanish roots I much prefer it to Barcelona even though I do like Barcelona anybody out there that loves Barcelona but I like it because it's, it is cosmopolitan, but with a very Spanish, traditional way about it. And I like that. I'm quite um, old fashioned, as in I love somewhere that has an inherent culture rather than just being a mismatch where you can just be anywhere. And also the nightlife is amazing. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, I definitely burned the candle. <laughs> I think I trained, worked and went out all night. For two years. <laughs> I don't know how the Spanish manage it. I grew up in Spain, so Spain is oh, a real Spain line. I go there every six weeks, really, at the moment, and it's it's my home. Whereabouts are you brought? In Malaga. I love that lifestyle, but actually it's become a problem for the Spanish because they used to stay out all night because they'd go home and have their siesta. But as modern life has taken over, they work further from home. They don't work around the corner where they can go back to their mum who's cooking them dinner and have <laughs> yeah. a nice little sleep. They, they work through the siesta. They do those longer hours that the rest of Europe does as well. And then sort of go um, on until eight, eight or so yeah. eat later, and then go out to all times so people yeah. I remember reading about in Madrid someone was trying to set up like little places where people could go and sleep <laughs> and have like idea. a little nap shop where you can go and like spend half an hour because you can't go home for your siesta but people go out to 
all hours yeah, and it's just wonderful and sometimes it's too hot to do anything else in the summer it's such a lovely yeah. environment i love that culture though because i felt like i got to do so much more so i'd work i'd get to see my friends i'd get to go out for dinners and i love food and i love spanish food and how a lot of their life focuses on food which suits me and the fact that you can go out for a meal at 10 o'clock at night and i used to go running after work and then i'd get a shower and then i'd still be able to go out i didn't have to sacrifice things well maybe sleep um, and I was a lot younger back then but I do love that because there's so much more light and I think so much more community spirit and I think we can we need to change that a little bit because I'm worried that sometimes we're getting a little bit insular where we're going home we're staying at home I love being around friends family and people and I think and I've actually learned that as well I think I've become much more focused on that especially after Rio and I've made it made myself realize that that's what makes you thrive that's what makes you live longer I think and that's why they live longer. I don't think it's the Mediterranean food. I think it's because they don't have that loneliness because there's such a community spirit. And I think that may, may be something our culture needs to work on a little bit. But I think it helps that they have much lighter nights. It's the weather. The yeah. weather makes a massive amount of yeah, difference. Yeah, and they sit outside as well, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. To eat and, you know. And the ability to, you know, hear a lot of people in the UK, and I'm sure this happens in colder countries around the world, is that you kind of, if yeah. you're going to go home... It's cold and, and miserable yeah, and dark. Yeah, it's cold <laughs> and miserable and dark, and people end up cancelling on their best friends when actually the best thing for you, yeah. as thousands of studies have proven, is to go and make that connection and keep in touch with people and communicate and have that sense of community, as you yeah. say. But the weather really, you know, makes a massive difference. Oh, it does make a massive difference. So did you get to meet the players then? Yeah, yeah, I worked with the players all the time. And I was lucky because the two years I was there was the Galacticos. So that's when everybody was there, like David Beckham, Raul, Ronaldo, as in, I was say Fat Ronaldo, but that's really bad, the older (laughs) Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo. You know, Robinho, they were all there, Guti, Zinedine Zidane, you know, so I was very lucky that I was in that time it, it was, was an amazing team, experience yeah it was a dream that, team it was an amazing I mean, experience they're still pretty good <laughs> yeah i know yeah and they're all doing amazing things the people david beckham's doing and you know they're all amazing role models and and yeah i think i learned i learned so much and i got to travel with them as well and i went don't know whether they still do but when it was champions league time they went and trained in erdning in austria and i got to you know travel again and go and hang around austria for a bit and report on their training and yeah, it was, a, it was an incredible experience and I was so young and I have a look back now, it's what dreams are made of because I wasn't a privileged child at all and I was a very troubled child as well and I lacked a lot of confidence and, you know, I had difficulty in my, my upbringing and had a lot of things happen to me and I was the first person to go to university and my family and so I was just trying to, find, trying to make my own path and then when I got that job, it was like, and also I remember going to the interview and there was about a thousand applicants they said and I walked into the uh, I don't know the waiting room and actually anybody who can relate to this or any advice I can give is I walked in that waiting room and everybody was wearing a suit apart from me and I was like oh crap I was like I haven't got this interview great I was like oh my gosh I was 21 years old I was wearing ripped jeans a funky t-shirt high heels and thought I looked appropriate for a job interview but you know but that was my style but actually it was the best thing I did because I didn't conform. I was just me. But I nearly walked out because I lacked so much confidence that I was like, oh, all these people are better than me. They're better educated than me. They're all wearing suits. You know, they're from better families than me. They're richer than me. All this sort of stuff. And then I was like, no, I might as well do it. I've come all the way to London. and I should say you're from Sheffield. Yeah, I'm from Sheffield. A, a steel town. It's yes. had a lot of unemployment and <laughs> yeah. problems over the years since the steel industries yeah. virtually died. 
and it's also got a wonderful cultural heritage it's got a great musical heritage as often those sort of working class sort of hubs do yeah. you know people find a way of expressing themselves yeah um, oh, there's so many bands from there so many bands like from arctic there. monkeys it does have a massive cultural heritage yeah. but it, there, there are pockets of severe deprivation oh, there yeah. and i was brought up in the 80s which is when all the mass unemployment hit because of the closing down of the steelworks we used to go and play on the like wreckage and yeah there just didn't seem to be the opportunities because nobody could get a job and but at the same time i'm so proud that i'm from there because i mean there's a lot of people on twitter that joke and it's like you know made of steel and northern grit and i think you know i didn't have it easy and i think actually i won't change anything for the world because it's made me who i am and it's made me a fighter fight to make it better and make it better for my family and that's kind of what i went on a bit of a mission and also to have a voice i think i didn't feel like we, we got a voice because when i was at school i was kind of you know we were the kids from the you know, deprived areas, the rougher areas, and that's what we were kind of told. You know, it was like, nobody bother with them lot because they're not going to make it anyway. And also my mum went to the same school as me, and don't forget that my mum got pregnant with me while she was at school. So straight away I was like, I was the kid that was just going to repeat the cycle. Written off a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I was, yeah, completely. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be. I think my mum was so desperate for me to not have kids. She was like, you know, by the time I turned 16, she was like, oh, thank the Lord, you're 16, you're not pregnant. <laughs> that she, like, really kind of, like, drummed it into me not to go and get myself pregnant. Not that there's anything wrong with that, because also my mum was so unfairly judged because my mum, she hid me and fought to have me. And, you know, that must have taken some incredible strength. And she seems um, to have done all right out of it, and you've done all, yeah. all right out of it, so it's turned out Exactly, well yeah. End. And I wanted to make you know, make her proud. So um, after after Madrid, you went to Asia. Oh, yeah, did. <laughs> what was that about? ESPN, was it? Yeah, I got um, worked in Madrid for two years and then left there and got offered a job pretty much straight away by ESPN to go and live in Singapore. But they'd never had a female host before TV presenter in sport. And I remember, like, I, I didn't even go out for the interview. I did the interviews on the phone um, and... <laughs> managed to get them again I don't know how um and then they said we've well, got to move out and I was like yes I was like brilliant I get to go and explore another continent I was like fantastic another place and it was just incredible and I was like yes brilliant I get to go and work and I mean it was a very basic way to look back now but for me I was like oh my god I made money <laughs> you know it's like because I had no money and you got to see things and I flew my family out which is amazing because they'd never been anywhere like that and so I got to share it with them and my little brothers it was just incredible because I got to travel all over I mean it was really tough because the first three months I was bullied a little bit or quite a lot actually as the only woman as the only woman yeah and I was tested I was really tested they were pushing me pushing me to see if I could handle it and I was like I'll show you <laughs> I was like but there was quite a few times that I actually sat in my room and cried but I was determined to not give in and then I think once they realized that I wasn't going anywhere and actually that I was brought up on football I know football I played football you know I've been going to matches since I was four and why on earth, just because I'm a woman, would I not know that? I still don't quite understand that. <laughs> you know, it's like, you can't understand the sport. It still makes me laugh, those attitudes. But I had those attitudes really bad when I was younger because back then, female sports presenters just didn't really exist. And But I had the most incredible time. I remember going to Thailand and with the Thai FA. I got taken to Indonesia to go to this big Jakarta match and said a few words on the pitch. And, and it was just amazing. Um, 
because what you know once I'd kind of cracked it I was accepted and I think people love that I supported Sheffield United and I didn't support Manchester United or Liverpool. Just Everyone because, in that part of the world uh, yeah, they love do. Manchester yeah. United and Liverpool. Wherever I've been in Southeast Asia, oh, they people, do. that's the first thing they say yeah. when they hear where you're from. You're like, ah, yeah. Manchester United. And they know more about it than we do. Absolutely. That's what makes me laugh. Like I remember sitting in a, in a taxi in Singapore and the guy started talking to me about Sheffield United and Sheffield Wednesday and he reeled off all these players and I was like, how on earth do you know that? And do you remember when he scored in that match? And I was like, uh, oh yeah I do but what how do you know yeah I was like yeah and, and also like I love Asian food that was another big thing for me like if anybody hasn't been to Asia like I'd recommend to go I'd recommend going to Malaysia actually yeah I love Malaysia but, yeah I do I think and the it's food's like incredible. Singapore it's a bit Asia light it's not as sort of terrifying as no. some of the other the other cities and no. the, you know Kuala Lumpur and traveling yeah. around it feels very clean and safe and you know, yeah it's a great introduction Asia. and yeah. just amazing food I know I've said food about five times but I just love the food <laughs> it's, uh, what Anywhere was your favourite place you went to in Asia? oh my gosh that's really hard I think Kuala Lumpur is one of my favourite cities I loved going to Cambodia because I found it very culturally interesting and I like history and I like politics and I know it was really horrific what happened but I found it very interesting learning about the Khmer Rouge and me too, Cambodia is just one of my favourite places but it's very emotional being yeah. there especially when you're reading up because the booksellers on the streets and people come around and, and sell books and I yeah. bought every book about the Khmer Rouge and about the the, the people's experience under yeah. Khmer Rouge and it, it's quite humbling and terrifying actually I remember yeah. suddenly reading about it and then being in the, the middle of the jungle and thinking oh it's a bit spooky right yeah here. You, know, you think of the ghosts of what has occurred yeah. in those places and there's and a lot of ghosts and it's so recent I think that's what I found it's it's in a such a recent time you know in our lifetime yes, it wasn't like it happened yeah. when you speak to people they lived it and also you know you, you see people I don't know that have been really affected by it and by the landmines as well the children with yeah. missing limbs everywhere begging yeah. in the street it's very difficult to deal with but on the positive side a very beautiful country and the people are very welcoming and oh, open gosh, and yeah. they seem to have thankfully overcome that in many ways yeah and the stars are still there. Yeah, they are. And I think Thailand as well. I love so much. I love Bangkok. Again, because it's, it's just crazy. so fun and it's crazy. <laughs> and I love that kind of craziness. But then, you know, you go further up and there's like beautiful islands. And I just hope that they don't become too spoiled. Well, did you hear recently they've had to close down... Oh, what's the name of the beach? I've actually been there. It was the beach that was in the film The Beach. Oh, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. Is it Maya Beach? Maya Beach. And they've had to close it for four months due to over overpopulation in terms of tourism right. um, which is quite unprecedented and they've also done it with a site in the Philippines this is something that's never happened before but because it's so wonderful and so beautiful everyone wants to go there and travelers change so much of us travel these days and you know we're ruining places unfortunately so they've taken this unprecedented step of actually closing the beach in the area and saying no one's coming for four months that's really good it is yeah I think so you know, some brave some, decision, I think. Yeah, and I mean, a really necessary. important decision. I've seen some tourists who just don't seem to have respect for where they're going, and that really disappoints me because I think it's really important to learn about the culture of where you're going. Like, every time I go to somewhere new, this is what I love about travel. I think it, it makes me grow, and that's what I like about it more than anything because I learn and then take something back each time. And I think rather than going there and stamping us on it, I think we should respect it and then and, and learn otherwise we're going to have nowhere to to go one of my favorite places that i've ever been in the whole world is colombia i'd love to go to colombia oh, a friend went go. recently and the just the 
pictures and obviously I've seen Narcos and yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. read a lot Narcos about it. Great, I haven't been, I love <laughs> it looks beautiful. Yeah, and that... no longer as scary as it once was. No, no. I went about four years ago and then everybody was like, why are you going there? And I was like, I don't know, I just really want to go. And I was like, read about Pablo Escobar and I found it really interesting because I don't know you have this like such mixed feeling about him and it was incredible I really recommend to go there are some places that are a little bit you know you have to just be a little bit careful at night time um, but it's a fantastic place to experience and it's got such variety because one minute you're in the mountains and the coffee plantations and then if you go to the top end of the country it's um, all this incredible rainforest and if you go even higher it's where the indigenous tribes live and then you go to Bogota which is incredible and then Medellin, which is where Pablo Escobar's from, is so interesting. If anybody's trying to struggle where to go, I would go there. I will put that on my list. Yeah, <laughs> but, sorry. Um, my last question for you, which is, uh, it's a question I ask everyone, and it's about music. Because to me, and to many people, I think music and travel go hand in hand because it evokes memories of a place and makes things all that yeah. much more intense. And the question is, if you could choose any music a, a song or a piece of music that has meant something to you created a wonderful memory when you've been traveling for work or in Rio or any time when a piece of music has meant something to you when you're traveling what would that song be oh my gosh that is a great question it's definitely not any music from Rio because I don't have any good memories <laughs> sorry Rio <laughs> but I'm being honest <laughs> sure they won't take it personally yeah, I know. and sorry for anybody who's like yeah but I love Rio well I don't they gave you malaria uh, damn it yeah, I, I know. deserve your scorn I don't like Rio <laughs> it's not I what don't want to be imagine. bad for their tourism because <laughs> um, that's not why I'm here yeah. Yeah. <laughs> saying that I just saw the inside of a hospital but there's one song that comes into my head and actually I did an incredible trip last year um, to Israel I know there's political opinion about Israel but just from an actual country it's an incredible country to visit tel aviv nightlife is amazing and i went to jerusalem and there's a song that i i traveled with an amazing group of people the song is jerusalem and it's by i don't know how you pronounce it mattis yeah yeah i'm not sure how you pronounce mattis it yeah. Yahoo. and it's like jerusalem. <laughs> and it's like beautiful, beautiful. reggaeton yeah thanks and I just, I don't know, that song just reminds me so much of that trip because it kept coming on in clubs and like Jerusalem, believe it or not, has the most amazing nightlife. By the way, I don't drink and I can't drink anymore. This is just because I love music and dancing so much and I just love being out, out and experience. And when we're in Jerusalem, I managed to find this bar that was really local and they don't let non-locals in and I persuaded them to let us in and there was people just dancing on the bar and the oh, tables and it was like kind of like a mixture of like kind of Middle Eastern reggaeton dance music and I was like in my element because I just love any kind of beat like that. And uh, we were dancing till like six in the morning and I went, I went back to the hotel put my running kit on and then ran um, to the Wailing Wall to see the sunset and it was just the most incredible experience one of the most incredible experiences I've had so yeah that's that would be the song that just reminds me of, of a travel place and then the other day I was I was actually uh, listening to a playlist and it came on and I just smiled so much because it just reminded me of that incredible time so yeah you're right like music just there's so many different songs I could say, but that's the one that first came into my head, so I'm going to stick to that one. I love that, Charlie, and that really sums up to me, sums up your energy, that you can be dancing all night in Jerusalem, go back to your hotel, put on your running shoes, and run down to the Wailing Wall and watch the sunrise. That's lovely. That really sums up your energy to me. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Oh, thank you. It's been amazing. 
the brilliant Charlie Webster here on the Big Travel Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Coming up next week is Paralympian Millie Knight. She's only 19 and already she's been in two Paralympics, telling us all about the thrill of downhill skiing and slalom when you're blind. She has some truly inspirational stories and you won't want to miss it. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.